This morning we began to exposit this section by considering the Holy Spirit's thematic connections. Verse 31, many that are first shall be last, and the last first. And this morning we looked at this kingdom principle from the stance of Jesus Christ as the living embodiment of humility. We saw how he knew he was going to Jerusalem to suffer. And he went straight before the disciples, determined to do so. Fulfilling Isaiah chapter 50, to do the Father's will, and John chapter 10, to lay down his life for his sheep. And we there saw that God has sovereignly purposed all the sufferings of the Savior for us, that we might be saved. And what depths of condescension do we see in this? The Lord of glory delivered to Gentiles. He was mocked, scourged, spat upon, killed. And then praise be to God, on the third day, he rose again. And as he came down in humiliation to suffer, and there was an exalted and crowned with glory and honor, as Hebrews 2 tells us, he shares it with us as he brings many sons to glory. What wonderful truths these are. And we've only just looked at a drop of the ocean. Indeed, I have not seen the glories that are prepared for us in Christ. Let us ever learn and grow and enjoy what Christ has freely done and given to us. But now the question arises, how did the disciples respond to Jesus Christ again for the third time revealing his messianic mission to them? Well, in verse 35, we're introduced to James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Now, if you know James and John, you know these are very privileged, prominent men. They were wealthy. And Mark chapter 1 verse 20 says, not only did they work, but they had their own ship and they had hired servants, plural. You don't have hired servants if you're poor. And they were members of a family that had connections to the very top of society. It is said in John chapter 18, verse 15, speaking of John, that disciple was known 
unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. See the connections? Why was, how was he able to get access to the palace of the high priest? Because he was known unto the high priest. And he also had prominent relations to Jesus Christ. Many, if not most, scholars believe that John and James were the cousins of Jesus Christ through their mother. This is when you put all four Gospels together and look at the names of the Marys and the names who are with the Marys during the time of the cross. And many, if not most scholars, believe that Salome is the mother of James and John, the wife of Zebedee. And if that is the case, then whereas Mark references the woman's name as Salome, John 19.25 reveals that this is the sister of Christ's mother. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, which again in Mark says Salome. And if this is the case, then James and John are cousins to Jesus Christ through their mother Salome. But they were also very prominently close to Christ in a spiritual way. As you know, Christ loves all his disciples, he loves his apostles, but then when there were times when he needed special friends, a close inner circle, whom did he choose? Peter. But who else? James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And so these two men, these two brothers, are very prominent in wealth, in status, in relations, and in connection to our Lord Jesus himself. And as they've heard the continual principle of humiliation and service, as they've just heard Jesus Christ say again, he is coming to suffer, how do they respond? Well, they come with a question. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldst do for us whatsoever we shall desire. Give us what we desire. Now, if they learned their lesson, you would expect something of humiliation or service. Christ, help us to serve you more. But what do they ask? And he said unto them, what would ye that I should do for you? What do you desire, James and John? What's on your heart? They said unto him, grant unto us that we may sit, one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand, in thy glory. Now here we must see both faith and vanity. I agree with John Calvin when he comments and says this, this narrative contains a bright mirror of human vanity. 
For it shows that proper and holy zeal is often accompanied by ambition. Do you not say faith here? What are they seeking? Glory. They truly believe that all the messianic glory of the Old Testament is fulfilled in this Jesus of Nazareth. They believe it and they're right. What is faith? Hebrews 11.1 Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith takes that which is unseen and future and it believes it. Look at the state of Christ right now. Do you see any glory around him? Do you see any valuable thing around him? No, he is poor, he is despised, he's hated among men, and he's due to be crucified in Jerusalem. And yet, they still believe the messianic glory is going to come through Jesus. There's faith here, and they are right to desire glory. But... It's an alloy faith, mixed with vanity, self-promotion. And if you read Matthew and Mark and put them together, you will see the depths of this ambition. Who comes to Jesus? It says here in Mark, James and John. But if you read Matthew's account, It says this, Matthew 20, verse 20. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshipping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left, In thy kingdom. But when you put the two together and the pronouns, you see what's happening. It's one of the good things about the authorised version. Thee and thou, you and ye. It might seem strange to us today, but it's very accurate. Thee and thou is singular. You, singular. Ye and your is plural. And there are times in the Bible when you have this helps you to understand. For example, in Genesis chapter is it eight or nine, when God is making that Noahic covenant, if you do not know single and plural, you'll completely misinterpret Noahic covenant. When the mother comes, he uses the singular thou. What wilt thou have me? Then she gives the request, and Jesus knows what's going on. This is not a mother taking two sons and grabbing them and bringing them to Jesus. Will you give them glory? No, 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 no. The sons are responsible. They've come to the mother and maybe if it's true to her nephew asking for glory. For it says in the plural, but Jesus answered and said, ye know not what ye ask. Jesus sees right through it. It's James and John using their mother to go to her nephew and say, 
give my sons the most prominent places in the kingdom. And when they're asking for glory, it is not the glory as understood by Christ, because he says, ye know not what you're asking. You don't get it. You do not understand. You see, for James and John, the disciples and the Jews of the first century, they had a distorted or unbalanced view of the kingdom of God. You see, they looked at the Old Testament passages that speak of ruling and reigning and governing and glory, ignored everything else about humiliation and suffering and dying, and had this political, earthly view of the Messiah. They took passages like Psalm twenty-two, twenty-eight: For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. The Lord's going to rule and reign with the nations. Psalm 72, when the Messiah will come, and all the nations from Tarshish and Sheba and so forth will bring all the riches and the gold and the tribute. And therefore they believed the Messiah was going to come as a political king, sit in a political throne in Jerusalem, rule the world, and all the Gentiles will bow down and serve the Messiah and the Jews and bring all the riches and glory there. And in John chapter 6, the Jews come and they say, here is that prophet to come. Just as Moses fed the people of God with the manna, they say, Christ did the same in the feeding of the 5,000. And it says in John chapter 6, verse 15, that they came to make him a king. And it says he departed and crossed the sea because their view of kingship was wrong. Or in John chapter 18, when Pontius Pilate's coming, are you king, are you king, are you king, and Christ not answering because he doesn't understand the nature of his kingship. For this reason I came into the world, to be king in a kingdom, but not the kingdom you think of. For my kingdom is not of this world. And so James and John, forget humiliation, forget suffering, forget the spiritual realities. It's all about a political messiah in Jerusalem where someone can be in the left and the right governing the nations, and receiving that tribute, that money, that riches on behalf of Jesus Christ. Sad to say, many Christians today have the same wrong view. Many people believe that when Jesus Christ returns, he's going to have a physical throne in the physical Jerusalem, physically, politically, militarily, ruling the whole Gentile nations. But that's not the kingdom of God. As we've seen again and again and again, it's a heavenly kingdom of Jesus Christ ruling in the hearts of his people and that love and light going throughout the earth with the conversion of souls, the disciples of souls, and people serving and loving and worshipping God on earth. And then Christ comes to them and says, Do you want glory? Do you want a kingdom? It's glory that comes through suffering. It's a kingdom that comes through suffering. Verse 38. But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not 
what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? In the word, when he says cup and baptism here, we'll, we'll demonstrate it in a moment, but here it simply means to experience overwhelming suffering. Are you able to endure overwhelming suffering? And how do they respond? We can. We are able. It's foolish, isn't it? I see myself in James and John. I don't know how often I thought I knew more than I knew or experienced more than I have experienced and because of my inexperience and because of my ignorance I have said foolish things. Maybe that's you. Maybe you think you know more than you know or think you experience more than you've actually experienced and when spiritual truths come to you, you respond and you say something very foolish indeed. Maybe we've all been like James and John. But when Christ says he's going to drink his cup and be baptized with his baptism, it's not generic suffering and persecution. It's particular, special, and unique to him. He is going to suffer overwhelmingly under the wrath and judgment of God. And through that, enter his glory. And again, these references are understood by people who know their Bibles. So, when you hear of suffering by a cup, do you know where to go in the Old Testament? When you hear about suffering with a baptism of water, do you know where to go in the Old Testament? It's another encouragement and exhortation. Do you know your Bibles? Well, throughout the Old Testament, when it comes to suffering, the cup is God's wrath against the wicked. For example, Psalm eleven six, which we sung, Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. Isaiah fifty one seventeen Awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which has drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. And there's only one person who drinks this kind of cup. It's not me. It's not you. It's not James. It's not John. It's the Lord Jesus Christ alone. If any of us were to drink this cup, we would be obliterated. As the psalmist speaks of wax being burnt up and melted in fire, our human nature would be obliterated on the infinite wrath of God. But not our beloved Christ. He is the God-man. And just as the altar sanctifies the gift, his divine nature sanctifies the gift. And he is enabled to endure infinite wrath on that cross. And in John chapter 18, verse 11, 
Jesus says, the cup which my father had given me, shall I not drink it? When did he begin to drink it? In a sense, his whole life, because he's under the state of humiliation, but the particular experience, I believe, began in Gethsemane. And the weight of that cup was so pressing, he sweat as it were, great drops of blood, He prayed three times, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me. His soul was exceedingly sorrowful unto death. He was sore amazed. And none of these expressions are of him drinking the cup. They're only prior to drinking the cup. So how much more was the weight? And Jesus Christ took that cup of fury, wrath, indignation and drank it all to satisfy God's justice and save us from our sins. But then a baptism to be baptized of. In the Old Testament often, uh, waters was the example or illustration of sufferings or persecutions or even the anger of God. We can think of two baptisms Uh, We can think of the baptism of the flood. In 1 Peter chapter 3, it says that Noah's flood was a baptism. And how did this baptism baptize the world? God's righteous anger overwhelmed the world in his wrath. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where it says that the Red Sea parting was a baptism. And we see the Egyptians and the Pharaohs when the wrath of Almighty God overwhelms them. And then even not the word baptism, but the symbolism of baptism is given throughout. For example, Psalm 69 verse 1, Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. I sink deep in mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. Or Psalm 124 verse 4, Then the waters had overwhelmed us. The stream had gone over our soul. And we see the darkness. You remember the darkness of Egypt, don't you, brothers and sisters? As God's wrath overwhelmed Pharaoh in Egypt. And then was the death of the firstborn. Well, here we have the new exodus on the cross where God's wrath baptizes Jesus with a baptism, overwhelms his soul so that he cries, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is the love that loved us, brothers and sisters. And so who can drink this cup and be baptised with this baptism? Not James, not John, not you, and not I. Jesus Christ alone. And this is a truth we have to not only confess, but live by. Because we as believers can start to think, or rather act, as if men were crucified for us. Because we start to live our Christian lives through men. And when we do that, we're acting as if they're the crucified ones. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, where all these people are arguing, debating, or who are you of? I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? When you put your attitude, your life following men, you're acting as if he is the Lord, he is the Messiah, he is the crucified one. Stop doing that. Serve Christ. Rabbi John Duncan was a very prominent, well-loved minister. His church absolutely loved him. And once in a sermon he said, I know you loved me, but I did not die for you. And we can fall into that danger. Where our Christian life and knowledge of truth is not primarily through the Bible, but through men, dead men and living men. Where our life is not based upon the readings of the gospel or the epistles or the prophets or the law, but actually our faith in life is based more upon John Owen and Rutherford and McShane and Spurgeon. Or that preacher or that preacher where we glean more truth and blessing through men than we do Jesus Christ himself. And when we do live like that, we're treating them as if they were crucified for us. Of course, we'd never think that in reality, we'd never say that, but in action we do. So yes, Ephesians 4, God has given gifts to the church, men, Dead men and living men who wonderfully bless us with their writings or their preachings and we value them, that's good. But you do not live your life through them. You don't live your life through me. You don't live your life through John Owen. You don't live your life through anyone else who's a preacher. Live your Christian life through Jesus Christ and the Scriptures. But there is a cup in baptism for the people of God. Where it says in verse 39, And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized, withal shall ye be baptized. No, it's not the same as Christ. In terms of experiencing suffering, yes it is. But in terms of the kind, absolutely not. Christ's cup in baptism is a penal substitutionary atonement. He's drinking that cup and taking that baptism judicially before God on behalf of other men to reconcile to God. They're not doing that. But they are experiencing his sufferings. Because when we're united to Christ by faith, there is a fellowship and there's a result of sufferings. Philippians chapter 3 verse 10, Paul says, I desire that I may know him, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 13, but rejoice. Inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, I believe, verse 24. 
who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Which means as Christ suffered and then entered his glory, true believers, the church, will suffer and then enter glory. We've said all the texts before, we know these things, blessed are they that are persecuted. Uh, Peter's full of it, that uh, thinking of strains concerning the fiery trial and so on and so forth. The cup and baptism we are to drink and receive is suffering in this world. Hatred for Christ's sake. Persecuted. And this was a prophecy, not just a promise. James was the first apostle to die. Not by natural causes, but by martyrdom. In Acts chapter 12, verse 1, James is the first apostle to suffer and die as a martyr. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, why is John in Patmos? Not because he's visiting, but because he's suffering there for the sake of Jesus Christ. Is the church today ready for suffering and persecution? I don't think we are in the United States of America. I'm not saying every believer, I'm not saying every church. I'm saying as a whole, I don't think we are. You think of the United States of America and the declension and the hatred from the media and the government and education and so on and so forth. Just a little thing and we can't take it. Are we prepared to lose our jobs for Christ's sake? Are we prepared to lose our freedoms for Christ's sake? The way we react is like a disgraceful. How, how could this ever be? The world's supposed to love us and accept us. How, how can we be suffering? Oh, oh, the law. But there's a cup to be drunk. There's a baptism to be baptized with. If God is gracious where he gives evangelical freedom in a nation and even supports the church, praise be to God, but do not dare think we deserve it. And I think the church today in the West think we deserve it because we had what so many centuries of great blessings we did. And we have this meritorious claim. We need to remember the Bible, Christ teaching here, and the general epistles. We're going to suffer and be hated. Let us be ready for it. But then Christ says in verse 40, But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them whom it is prepared. And in Matthew's account in chapter 20, it says it's the Father who gives it, not me. I think there's a double entendre here. I think it means both the cross and eternity. On the cross... Who did the Father choose to be in his left hand and his right hand? The two thieves on the cross. But in terms of eternity, there will be people more closer to Christ than others. Because the Bible promises for true believers, what we do now echoes in eternity. Our good works will be rewarded in heaven. And the more faithfulness and good works we have now, 
the greater the blessing in heaven. The Bible is very clear. Matthew 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he shall reward every man according to his works. Matthew 25, the talents. What do you do with your talents? Depends upon the amount in heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says that we will all, we Christians, we believers, all appear before the judgment seat of God, of Christ. And we'll give an account for everything good and evil, and we'll be rewarded thereof. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about going fire, hay, wood, and stubble, and what you do in this life affects your reward in heaven. And in Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, Behold, this is Jesus Christ, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according to his work shall be. So think of a bucket. You might have five buckets with different capacities, but if you fill each capacity, each will be filled to the brim, but the amount will be different. So the blessings of heaven. We'll all be filled and full and satisfied, but the capacity and blessedness will be different from one to another. So what we do here and now affects your blessing in heaven. So every day when you choose, read my Bible or not, pray or not, serve Christ or not, do this or not, go to the prayer meeting or not, go to morning and evening service or not, will affect your reward in heaven. And one, not the, one of the motivations for holiness and sanctification in the Bible is your reward. It is not a pious thing to say, oh, we shouldn't look to our reward. Oh, it's all by grace. Nonsense. It is by grace. And God is so gracious, he gives undeserving men and women rewards. And so we should use this as a motivation every single day. What are you doing or not doing? It affects your blessedness in heaven. So let us all live for Christ. Put Christ first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then our joy will be full. But what happens when the other disciples find out? It says they come in and they're displeased. In other words, they're indignant. They're not indignant because James and John are doing something wrong, but because James and John got there first. If you look at uh, chapter 9, verse 34... Speaking of all the disciples, they held their peace, for by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. So they're simply jealous that James and John got there first. But then Christ turns to them and gives them a lesson. And he says from verse 42, But Jesus called them to him, and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. So look at the Romans. 
what are they doing? They go to a nation, they put themselves first, they give themselves power and authority, and people want to work up the ranks to have power, dominion and authority over other people. That's what James and John are acting like. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you will be your minister or your servant. And whosoever of you will be chiefest shall be the servant of all. The kingdom of God is not being first and prominent and dominant and have everyone come to you. To be chief, to be great, is that you would humble yourself and serve everyone. Is it not interesting that this teaching has been repeated chapter after chapter? Why is that? Because pride is so deceitful. Pride is so powerful. And just as they could miss it, I can miss it, and you can miss it too. Are you great in the kingdom? Are you chief in the kingdom? Well, do you serve all? And where should we go for motivation? Where should we go for encouragement? Where should we go as an example of how we should serve all? Christ himself, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus Christ is our motivation example. Who is he? The Son of Man. And what's the Bible's teaching about the Son of Man? Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. The Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, came to the Ancient of Days, and listen to this, and there was given him dominion, glory, kingdom, that all people, nations, languages should serve him. So the Son of Man is God. He receives dominion over all things, kingdom of things, power over things. And what's due to him? All peoples and nations should serve him. That's what's due to him. The Son of Man came. What do we not read? The Son of Man came to be served. It doesn't say that, does it? It says the Son of Man came not to be served. It was owed to him. He was worthy of it. It's due to him. But he came not. He came to serve. That's humiliation. In the words of Philippians 2, he emptied himself. His own reputation He humbled himself to be a slave. And how did he serve all? A ransom. A ransom is to pay a price for deliverance. And what did the Son of Man pay? Gold? Silver? No, he gave his life. The divine life. The life that is worthy to be served. The life that receives 
dominion and power and glory. The life that deserves all peoples and nations and families to serve him. He gave his own life. For who? For many. This is the language of Isaiah 53 verse 11 where it says, By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. For iniquities. He doesn't come to serve the worthy or the deserving or the righteous. He serves the unrighteous, the unworthy, the sinful, iniquitous person. He did this on the cross for me and for you. And therefore, if the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his own life as a ransom for many, the application by the implication is if we are going to be great, if we're going to be chief in the kingdom of God, we will do so too. James and John, take away your deservedness. Take away your hired servants. Take away your relationship to the high priest. Take away your relationship to Salome and to me through Mary. Take away your inner circle uh, privileges and serve all. And that's what we need. We need this mind of Jesus Christ. We're not puffing up ourselves. We're not saying I deserve or I owe. But we are serving all. Let us all know that when we serve, we do so to the glory of Christ. Let us know we're not doing it out of simple legalistic obedience, but out of an evangelical obedience and thankfulness for what the Son of Man has done for me in the atonement. Therefore, as our example, I do for all. Every morning, Martin Luther said, preach the gospel to yourself. It's a wonderful, simple truth. You do that, you'll be blessed all day. And what is that gospel? It's verse 45, that the Son of Man came for me and he served me by giving his life as a ransom for many. That will give you assurance. That will help you to have the right attitude that day. That will make you thankful no matter what happens. And then turn around and make it horizontal. Today, I come not to be served, but to serve and give my life for all. In my household, in my family, because that's where you're waking up, I come this day not to be served by husband or wife or children. I come to serve. I go to college. I go to my workplace. I come not to be served. I come to serve. In the church, in the church life, seven days a week, or when we gather together, or what have you, you say, I do not come to be served, I come to serve and give my life. Is that not First John 3, 16? As he laid down his life for us, we lay our life down for the brethren. And isn't it amazing that some of the highest Christological passages, the context is not actually about the personal work of Christ. If you read First Corinthians chapter 8, What's the context? Sorry, 2 Corinthians 8. What's the context? Give more money to the church. Give more freely, willingly, and cheerfully to the church. And then verse 9, For by the grace of God, as Christ who is rich became poor for us, so that we would be rich on his behalf. 
Here's another one. Serve everyone. How? Example, motivation, enablement, Jesus Christ's personal work. As he is the Son of Man, as he came to serve, as he came to give his life, so let us all do it. And may the Holy Spirit give us all humility to serve all in the kingdom. Let us pray.